0: Our scripture this morning is Matthew eight eighteen through 27. Now you can follow along in your Bibles or your apps or whatever you have. Um, but now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, a violent storm developed on the sea so that the boat was being covered by the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and given to us in love.
1: All right, good morning, everyone. We're working, good. If suddenly I go silent, they're gonna wave at me and I'll switch mics, so we're having a little some technical issues, so. Um, Anyway, so we're continuing this survey of the Bible here for about 30 weeks, Uh, representative passages and narratives in the Old and the New Testament that we're going through. If you're keeping score, uh, we're on number 17, all right? So just, just in case you wanted to know. Now, the last time I preached, it was on David and Goliath. Um, and I noted that so often when we read that narrative of David and Goliath, we think we're supposed to be like David. We're supposed to emulate him. Uh, and there is some truth there, but I noted that when we read the narrative of David and Goliath, it is not David with whom we can or should most readily identify. It is with the cowardly Israelites who would not stand up to Goliath with whom we should identify. After all, we are the fearful ones. In that sermon, I emphasize fears that we all have in regard to shame and humiliation. What if people knew what I was really like? Would they still love me? Does God still love me? And I noted that it was not the quality of his faith that made him want to emulate, but it was his knowledge of the God in whom he had faith. It was his intimate relationship with God that fueled his faith, and I noted it is that knowledge and that experience of intimacy that we are to emulate so that we too can live faithfully in the midst of our fears. And today we're gonna actually amplify many of those ideas as we turn to a really quite amazing story of the power of Jesus, the Son of God. And so today we're gonna see first that God has power and control. And second, we'll consider how should we live in light of that power and control. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, wade into some deep waters today, so we pray Your Spirit will be with us and guide us in our thinking, and we pray that um, the words that I speak would be in blessings to Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. So our narrative starts today with this big crowd around Jesus. Uh, he decides that they need to depart by boat and go to the other side. But before they get in the boat, there are a couple of warnings about the discipleship, about discipleship to would-be followers. In the first, Jesus tells a would-be follower that following Jesus means you have no home. Is that really true? After all, we read in other parts of the Gospels that Jesus is at the home of this follower or that. It can't mean that literally followers of Jesus have no literal home, no building to be in. But the truth in this statement is that one who follows Jesus should not regard this time on earth as time at home followers of Jesus should live as though they are in a temporary home, as though they are immigrants and aliens in this home. And so I would invite you to spend some time unfolding what that would look like in your life and in the life of your family. Would it change what you worry about? Would it change what you devote your time to? Would it change how you treat others, especially immigrants and aliens in our midst? In the second warning, Jesus tells a would-be follower that following Jesus is more important than family matters. Now, does this mean we are to abandon our families, our parents, our siblings, our children? Of course not. In Mark 7, Jesus tells the Pharisees that in failing to care for their parents, they are setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep their tradition. We don't abandon our families. This warning does mean, however, that our relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is more important important in our relationships with our families. And again, you might spend some time unfolding what that would look like in your life and in the life of your family. And I go through those quickly because today we're really gonna focus on what happens in the boat. We read from Matthew 8 today. There are parallel passages for this narrative of Jesus' calming of the storm in Mark 4 and in Luke 8. Matthews is actually the briefest and most abbreviated I will draw both from Luke and Matthew this morning. Jesus gets in the boat, and his disciples followed. Luke 8, 22 and 23. He said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Apparently, Jesus is exhausted. Most of the time in the Synoptic Gospels, as Jesus is moving from place to place, he is surrounded by large crowds. They are often described as pressing in on him. He he heals their infirmities, exercises their demons, even raises a few from the dead. He rarely gets time to himself. It should not surprise us that he immediately falls asleep when he gets the chance. But a storm arises, and apparently it's a great storm. Now, the body of water that they were crossing is the Sea of Galilee. It's the lowest freshwater lake on earth. It is about 700 feet below sea level. That's amazing. Actually, 700 feet below sea level. The Jordan River exits the lake and proceeds south to the lowest lake in the world, which is the Dead Sea, and that's 1,400 feet below sea level. It's salt water, whereas the Sea of Galilee is freshwater. There is no exit of water from the Dead Sea. Now, the Sea of Galilee, because of how deep it is, sits... Among these mountains and heights that cause these very stiff winds and sometimes terrific storms to come on rather suddenly, just kind of funneling down this valley, if you will. And this is what happened on this day to Jesus and the disciples Matthew 8 24. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. Many of the disciples, now you're going to recall, are fishermen. They've been used to sailing every day on the Sea of Galilee. They would have been accustomed to various storms. But this storm was apparently worse than most because it even frightened the most seasoned fishermen among them. They went to Jesus, verse 25, and they came to him and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. They are fearful and they do not know what to do. And they did what many of us do, certainly what I do in their fear. They called on Jesus. To save them. Now, in the Mark and Luke narratives, Jesus calms the storm first and then confronts the disciples. In the Matthew narrative, it's the other way around. We don't know which happened first, and it really doesn't matter, but I have to tell you, I kind of chuckle whenever I read the Matthew version. Here's this raging storm. The waves are breaking over the side of the boat, beginning to swamp it. Everyone is scared. There's chaos. They wake up Jesus. And I can see him kind of, you know, slowly coming out of his sleep, kind of swinging his legs over, sitting up, looking at them. And they're looking at him. And this is a small boat. So behind them, they see the waves coming up over and over again. He says, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. I mean, I kind of chuckle. They're standing wide-eyed, trembling, terrified. They want him to do something and do something now. And he's asking them why they're afraid. Why doesn't he look around and see what's going on? Do something, Jesus. And he does. He got up. Just imagine, he kind of got up. And rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Little wonder that the next verse says, the men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, as I mentioned at the beginning uh, in my last sermon, I talked about fears of being found out. Fears of shame and humiliation, excuse me, humiliation. These are all tremendously powerful fears that I dare say we all have. But I want to think more broadly about our fears. Todd helped us with this a couple of weeks ago. He mentioned a tragic, senseless death in Tennessee. I'm not gonna be so specific, but I'll just have us pause for a minute as we consider what's going on around us. Political strife, genocide, war, climate change, abortion, racism. And I know that in my last sermon, I said it was probably not as bad as our social media stream suggests, but there's still plenty of bad things going on. It's pretty easy to give up hope. And as we said, the purpose of this series is to help keep us from giving up hope. Now, I'm not gonna touch on all 16 previous sermons, but almost every biblical narrative we have seen in this series should assure us of some aspect of God's power and control over the universe and over human beings. Let's think of just a few examples of what we've heard. Creation, the creative power and might of God. The universe, with an estimated 200 sextillion stars, Do you know what a sextillion is? It's a billion trillion, or a trillion billion, all right? So think about that. There are a trillion stars 200 billion times. That's the creation. Wow, that's amazing. God, we we heard about the flood, God's control over the elements. We see that again in our passage today. And and you could call creation and flood kind of macro events, right? These are the big events. But God is involved in micro events as well. Isaac's birth, opening the womb of an elderly woman far past the time of fertility. Joseph in excellence. I mean, that's God's micromanagement par excellence. Joshua, Jericho, miraculous intervention in war. David and Goliath, this wonderful deliverance of the Israelites from a very unexpected source. Naaman's healing, bringing health to many. Daniel's deliverance, staying. The natural inclination of animals and today again deliverance from terrible weather now all of these narratives were given to us to assure us of god's power and control over the universe over the weather over animals over human beings in a word these are all stories of god's sovereignty the understanding that god is sovereign over everything that occurs in the world is the clear teaching of scripture we understand it from the narratives that we've been going through, as I just pointed out. We understand it from the Psalms, which we repeatedly and, which repeatedly and wondrously remind us of God's power and control. We understand it from the first sermon preached on Pentecost, when Peter said in Acts 2, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The truth of the sovereignty of God, that God exercises power and control over all aspects of creation and human activity, underlies the entire biblical witness. So why is it that we have to be reminded of this so much? Why do we have to be reminded so often of God's power and control? It's because we have wrong thoughts about God, and these thoughts lead us into trouble. In a word, we try to domesticate God. Instead of meditating on the wonder, might, and power of God and fitting that understanding into our thinking and our lives, we try to fit God into our culture, our thought patterns, and our expectations. And I don't know if you remember the confession we read and. Michael did not know anything about this sermon, but we just confessed that we try to fit God into our cultural patterns or something close to that. Not exactly, don't remember the exact words. Ironically, in worship, we often sing about the wonder, might, and power of God, his sovereignty, but then we leave it there and we go about our lives with no insight or benefit from that singing and praising. How do we try so hard to domesticate God? Why are we reluctant to embrace his sovereignty? I'm sure there are many reasons, but let's consider a few today. The first that I will mention is that we don't like the idea that someone else is in control. The success of the scientific revolution, the influence of the Enlightenment over the last 300 years has given secular modern men the idea that everything is in his or her control, it's all up to him or her. And we in the church, influenced by those secular notions, have too often embraced the myth that we are in control of what happens to us. We think if we just do the right things, then good things will ensue. If we exercise and eat right, and goodness knows I'm a doctor, I've told plenty of you you and others to do that. But if you exercise and eat right, we will not have serious illnesses or diseases. If we work and study hard, we will get good grades, a good job, and a comfortable life. If we try to live by God's moral law, okay, I'm not perfect at it, but if we're trying, then bad things won't really happen to me. And of course, there is some truth in those ideas, right? Taking care of your body does reduce your risk, but it doesn't remove it. Lots of people work and study hard, but rewards seem uneven or even absent at best. And trying to live by God's moral law does result in good things, but bad things still happen. The result of this myth of control, by which both those who follow Jesus and those who don't try to live, is that we spend our lives exhausting ourselves and others trying to control them and our circumstances. And it's devastating when it doesn't work. I am one of those people who often succumbs to that myth. I am definitely a control freak, okay? And I experience devastation when it's disproven. And then I'll just embrace the myth over and over again. I am so stupid. I need constant reminding, and I suspect many of you need constant reminding that God's in control. The second reason that we're reluctant to embrace God's sovereignty is because of the things that happen or have happened in our own personal lives and in the world. Some of you have been through horrible events in your life. And I expect that some of you have wondered, if God has power and control, why did this happen to me? Couldn't God have prevented this or that event? Couldn't God have made this unfold in a different way? All of us see the things in our world that I just outlined a few minutes ago, and you wonder, if God has the power and control, why do all these terrible things happen? Couldn't God have prevented this or that event? Couldn't God have made this unfold in a different way? We all need constant reminding about this. And the third reason I'll suggest this morning is that to embrace the sovereignty of God raises all sorts of difficult questions. Philosophical questions, if you will. And some of us worry that if we spend too much time thinking about those questions, we might start to doubt God. We might even start to doubt God's existence. Considering God's sovereignty leads to questions about human freedom. If God has power and control over me, why am I responsible for my sins or for anything that I do? Considering God's sovereignty leads to questions about the existence of evil. You wonder if God has power over nature and human beings, as we've already said. Why do these terrible things happen? Some worry that if they think too hard about such things, that they will perhaps even wander away from the faith. So we try to domesticate God and make him fit into our cultural mores, our thought patterns, and our expectations we don't embrace the sovereignty of God. We don't dwell on it. We don't meditate on it. We need constant reminding. And the result of this is that we, leave. we live fearfully instead of freely. We live with anxiety and not with peace. Now, to help us move toward application, let's remind you of refreshing and liberating teaching of Scripture about this. First, the Bible finds no contradiction in affirming both God's sovereignty and your freedom. We've already said the clear-cut teaching of Scripture is that God has power and control. I think we've proven that. In regard to those who follow Jesus, we are told that they are the elect of God. But Scripture also teaches that we have the freedom to choose, that things happen because of our decisions. For example, and probably the most important decision that one can make in in life, Romans 10 Paul says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's up to us to make a decision about Jesus, and we're perfectly free in that decision making. Is there a mystery here? Certainly. Is there a contradiction? No. No. You are to make your free choices and decisions and understand it as God who is in control of all things and who will ultimately bring you safely into his presence through the redemption completed in Jesus' sacrifice of himself on your behalf. Secondly, the Bible affirms God's power and control, but also states that he's not the author of sin. James 1, 13 and 14, Let no one say that he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. God does not tempt people. He does not author sin. So again, a mystery, Attention: He doesn't author sin. He does not will it into existence. He does permit it. So don't be surprised when bad things happen. Evil exists. I think that's the one thing we've all proven in life. All humans are still sinners and hurt ourselves and one another, but God, who is in control of all things, will ultimately bring you safely into his presence. And third, God tells us there are things that he tells us for our good, and there are things that he doesn't tell us, and that, too, is for our good. In the midst of restating the covenant, Moses tells the Israelites, In Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. What are the secret things? Simply put, the secret things are the way in which God is unfolding his plan on earth. Ultimately, the unfolding of history and of redemption. What are the revealed things? The teaching of scripture on how we should live as human beings in intimate relationship with God and in community with one another. So don't be surprised when you don't understand what God's up to in various things that occur in your world or in the the world or in your life. It's not your job to understand those things. And it is in recognizing this difference between the secret things and the revealed things that we can find freedom from fear and anxiety. How in the world does that work? To put it another way, how should we live in light of the power and control of God? And in a word, it takes wisdom. Now, I think in each of my last two sermons, I've referenced J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. I think I told you the first time. I wish I had read this every year. I hadn't read it in 30 years. I wish I'd read it every year. All right. I hope you've been reading it this summer as Todd recommended If you have, then what I'm about to say to you will be familiar. If you have not, then I'm glad you're here. Packer devotes two chapters in his book on wisdom. As an aside, interestingly, he has no chapter in his book on sovereignty, which is really interesting. He has all this stuff about knowing God, nothing about sovereignty. He actually says in the forward to the second edition that people ask him, why didn't you have a chapter on God's sovereignty? He said, why would I have a chapter on God's sovereignty? It's everywhere in the Bible. He didn't think he had to write it. But he has two chapters on wisdom. The first is God only wise, and at the end of that chapter, he writes what can can briefly summarize what I've spent a good while saying. Packer writes, We may be frankly, well, frankly, there we go, bewildered at things that happen to us, but God knows exactly what he is doing. And what he is after in his handling of our affairs, always and in everything, he is wise. We will see that hereafter, even when we never saw it here. Job in heaven knows the full reason why he was afflicted, though he never knew it in this life. Meanwhile, we ought not to hesitate to trust his wisdom, even when he leaves us in the dark. And I would add, he often does leave us in the dark. In the next chapter, called God's Wisdom and Ours, Packer first notes what wisdom is not. And he uses this great example. Although we might have a little bit of trouble relating to it because we don't have much of a train system in the United States compared to what they had uh, in England, which is what he was quoting. So I'm going to alter this a little bit. And I want you to think about standing uh, outside Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. Hartsfield has five runways, seven concourses or terminals, and it is the busiest airport in the world. There are a thousand flights daily. If they were spread evenly across 24 hours, there would be a plane going and coming every 90 seconds for 24 hours in a row. Of course, they're not spread evenly. They're all during the day. So holy cow, it's even more during the day. I can't believe it. Many of you probably flown through Atlanta. I don't know about you, if you ever looked out the window as you're landing in Atlanta? There's another plane right out there landing right with you. You're like, how does this work? This is crazy. Now, if you're standing in a clearing near the airport, you would be seeing all these planes everywhere, coming, going. You'd wonder, why is this plane landing from this direction at this time? Why are there two planes landing at the same time? How does the pilot know it's safe to take off? Because from your position, you would have no real understanding of the entire plan. But if you were up in the air traffic control center, and if you knew what all those symbols on the screen meant, I don't, and what all the words the controllers were saying meant, and I sometimes listen in on the radio when I'm in a plane, and I think it's really cool, but I really have no idea what they're talking about. But if you did that, then it would be plainly clear to you why certain planes land or take off at certain times and in certain directions. And Packer says this is the mistake that believers commonly make because we think that when God supplies us with wisdom, it is the wisdom of the air traffic controller. Packer writes, Now the mistake that is commonly made is to suppose that this is an illustration of what God does when he bestows wisdom. To suppose, in other words, that the gift of wisdom consists in a deepened insight into the providential meaning and purpose of events going on around us, an ability to see why God has done what he has done in a particular case and what he is going to do next. People feel that if they were really walking close to God so that they could impart wisdom, so he could impart wisdom to them freely, then they would, so to speak, find themselves in the air traffic control center. They would discern the real purpose of everything that happened to them, and it would make clear to them every moment how God was making all things working for good. And such people spend much time poring over the book of providence. That means what happens to them. Wondering why God should have allowed this or that to take place, whether they should take it as a son or to stop doing one thing and start doing another and what they should deduce from it. And in the end, if they end up baffled, they put it down to their own lack of spirituality. Now, Packer switches analogies here, if you read the book. He switches to driving the car, but I'm going to keep the analogy going in the flying. Because the wisdom God gives to us is not the wisdom and understanding of the air traffic control center. It's the wisdom of the pilot. It's the wisdom to fly well and safely. In order to do that, you need to be realistic. You need to know what's going on around. You. you need to pay attention to your surroundings, understand it, understand the rules that govern flying. That would be helpful. And then make your best decision. And guess what? You get to do that another thousand yards. And then you get to do that another thousand yards. You get to do that another thousand yards, okay? You do it over and over again until you reach your destination safely. That is the wisdom that God gives. If we want to sum all this up quickly we can say what does god control and know short answer everything what do we control and need to know not so short an answer we control very little and we need to know that god is in control and we need to know how we should live and that god will deliver us and that is the story of redemption we control very little we need to pay attention to our surroundings understand what is happening in front of us Understand how we should live as followers of Jesus, and that's the wisdom that God gives us. Now, you know, as helpful as all these biblical narratives are in teaching us about God's power and control, it's actually possible for us to get the wrong idea from them. After all, these narratives are told like we're in the air traffic control center, aren't they? I mean, we're up here seeing what's happening, or it's after the fact. We can see the meaning in all this stuff. And we think that means that we should be able to understand what God is doing in our life. But, but that's not how we should read these narratives. When we read these narratives, we need to put ourselves in the story. We need to imagine that we're living out the story, not knowing what is going on to really, un- sorry. We need to imagine that we are there living out the story, not knowing what is going on to really unfold and not really knowing what God is up to. And it is there that you will find wisdom and insight in how to live in the light of the power and control of God, and you'll reduce your fear and your anxiety. So as we think about today's story, you should have put yourself in the sandals of the disciples and recognize that you would have been as terrified as they were. You would have needed reminding. So you should hear Jesus ask, Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? You should see him act to protect and deliver you. The Bible storybook summarizes it this way. They had forgotten if Jesus was with them, they had nothing to be afraid of, no matter how small their boat or how big the storm. The unfolding plan of redemption that we see in Scripture that's revealed there is actually part of the secret things of God. Because the biblical narratives so often do give us the why of things, we have this tendency to think that we should be able to see the why of things. But Scripture gives us the why of things, so we'll have confidence that that we know that God is in control, that we can trust that God has power and control. And just as the biblical characters did not get to know the why of the things when they were living, we don't get to know the why of things now. But we do know the revealed things of God. He has revealed that he has the power and control over creation and human beings. He has revealed that we can expect a deliverance in this life or the next. And he has revealed to us the rules to live by for our own good, summarized in the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and your neighbor as yourself. It is here that we will find wisdom and the ability to live without fear and with freedom to be the people of God.
0: Amen.